Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy Word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our consideration of verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. 
Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. As I said, we're continuing our consideration of this verse. Last time, we were able to consider in context who they are or who who the them refers to. That this is in the midst of Romans 1, 18-32 describing the sin that was rampant in the Gentile world that Paul was describing here in the first century as he's trying to illustrate and demonstrate the need for the Gospel. The need to be declared righteous through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteous by faith shall have eternal life. He's trying to demonstrate that point. Chapter 2, he's going to demonstrate it among the Jewish people. That in their religious hypocrisy and sin, they needed a Savior even as the pagan Gentiles needed a Savior. But Paul's not simply dealing with individual sin and individual salvation. He's looking at the pagan Gentile nations as cultures and as societies. And he's pointing out in the latter half of chapter 1 this organic cultural decline or decay, which we said takes five stages. First, we considered a number of weeks back ingratitude. That they knew God, they had some sense of God from His revelation, in this case natural or general revelation in the created world. They had a sense of these things. From that revelation, they knew who God was in terms of some of His invisible attributes, His power, His wisdom, and yet they didn't act upon it. They didn't worship and glorify Him as God. And they were ungrateful for the many blessings that God had bestowed So they didn't act upon God's revelation. Secondly, God then gave them over to idolatry. They became futile, verse 21, futile or vain in their thoughts, in their imaginations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They were given over to idolatry. God isn't honored as God, so God's out of the picture. Something's going to fill the void. Something's going to fill the vacuum. We said first it was intellectual idolatry that... God's not calling the shots and defining truth and error by His revelation. And so, man's ideas fill the vacuum. Intellectual idolatry. And we saw that in a similar way in our own nation, if you trace this same pattern in our rejection of special revelation in the Bible, you see this same pattern leading to intellectual idolatry in the days of our founding fathers and of Thomas Jefferson and his cut and paste version of the Bible. So intellectual idolatry as well as religious idolatry. If man is calling the shots, then man defines who God is and how God is worshipped. And so idolatry takes its course in terms of human religious worship. But on from the stage of idolatry, the third stage, which we began last time, is the stage of immorality. Stage three, where the man-made restraints against sin prove ineffective. So, God's revelation among the pagans, it was His natural, general revelation in creation and conscience. That had provided a restraint against 
outbursts of the lusts of the sinful heart. It had maintained something of order and ethics and morality and something of truth and wisdom even in pagan societies because of God's general revelation. But once that is suppressed in unrighteousness, bumped out of the equation and replaced with human ideas and human uh, opinions, those human opinions cannot restrain wickedness in the way that God's revelation did. And so lust is gradually emancipated. And again, you see it in our society with uh, our rejection of God's special revelation. When we push Scripture out, when we take the Ten Commandments off the courtroom wall, the God-given restraints are out of the picture and whatever human restraints on human sin that our society thinks that it has come up with, they're ineffective. And so eventually if you can't beat lust, you join lust and lust is emancipated. Lust is celebrated. Welcome to Pride Month, stage three, immorality. We said there's five stages actually. The next stage is perversion. So we're actually beyond stage three, but you, you see the point. The fifth stage is chaos and we're probably just entering into chaos mode described at the end of the chapter. But right now in our sermon series anyway, we can just time travel back to stage three, immorality. We saw that this is not only organic cultural decline, but that it is the judicial wrath of God, that God has imposed sanctions on a wicked society as described in this chapter and as applied to our own nation and society. He imposes sanctions. He pulls back the restraints. He says, if you want to be God, here you go. Enjoy. You want to do whatever you want to do, you're going to be a slave of your own lust. You won't serve me, you'll be a slave of your own sinful, selfish desires. And one of the most powerful slave masters in all the world, we saw Hosea 4.11 told us that uh, wine and new wine and harlotry enslave the heart. So sexual sin is sexual slavery and it destabilizes every human institution that exists. Uh, We won't go into all those things, but it's the judicial wrath of God. It's God's curse upon societies that don't want His revelation. They don't want the restraints. Okay, here you go. The restraints are removed. God's revelation, the influence of God's church, which for the pagans was removed at the Tower of Babel to some extent. Um, God's Holy Spirit striving against sin and unbelief. All these things are removed. We said as well last time that this is a heart problem. Sexual sin or uncleanness is a heart problem in the lusts of their hearts. Biblically speaking, the heart includes the mind and the will. Not just the mind. When we see the word mind in Scripture, it's usually focusing on the intellectual faculty of man in particular, but the heart includes both the mind and the will. Man's thoughts, the thoughts of his heart, man's desires, the desires of his heart. So if it's a heart problem, we said last time, it is a mind and a will problem. There is self-deception and willful blindness in the mind. And therefore, it requires a heart solution. A solution that involves truth being proclaimed to and received by the mind. Jesus says you're a slave to sin. The truth will set you free. 
Your mind needs to be filled with the truth. We saw in Romans 8 that when Paul talks about his victory over the sins, that he didn't want to commit these sins, but he found himself committing the sins, and he wanted to do these righteous things, but he found himself not doing the things he wanted to do. Chapter 7, he's struggling back and forth, but in chapter 8, he overcomes that tension and that conflict through setting his mind on the things of the Spirit because the carnal mind that focuses on earthly considerations is at enmity with God. We looked at numerous passages that show that the battle of the heart begins in the mind. Our mind needs to inform our will with the most significant considerations that will help our will to make a good decision. Using the illustration of uh, if you're going to invest some money and you don't know anything about the stock market and you go in to the investment advisor at Edward Jones, you're at the mercy of the information that that man or woman is giving you to help you invest your money. Well, in a similar sense, God has designed our humanity such that our mind is the means by which our will is informed about the implications and consequences, the desirability of the choices that are set before us. So we need to fix our minds on the truth so that we're making informed decisions. And we said that the solutions that are offered by so many Christian psychologists and experts in our day to overcome sexual lust and sexual sin, those solutions are almost entirely inadequate. There's something you can gain from from these things but they are largely inadequate because they focus too much on mere human accountability. And we saw that, well, it might be the case that you, know, you might be able to restrain your lust after pornography or something by the consideration that you might have to tell an accountability partner and then look bad, but ultimately, the biblical motivation for rejecting lust as something that is wicked and unclean needs to rise above, I'm afraid that somebody might find out. What about God finding out? That should be more, more uh, of a concern, more of a consideration. So your mind needs to actually focus on the truths that are going to win the argument that's taking place in your mind when you're tempted towards sexual lust and sexual sin. And not merely external restraints. So yes, lock your phone. Yes, get a filter on your internet. Yes, do whatever you need to do so that you're not just opening the door of temptation. But as we said, Joseph, he wasn't able to uh, use some kind of lock or device to keep Potiphar's wife from daily assaulting him with temptation. He, he had to get right in his mind that this is evil and unclean and I hate it and I won't sin against God by doing it. I won't sin against Potiphar. I love God too much. The truth sets me free. Even if denying this ungodly lust puts me in jail as an accused rapist, I don't care. In fact, here he chose to be pure even when it ruined his reputation. So that cuts against the modern psychological method of overcoming lust which says that your pride and vanity and concern for reputation is sort of the lever that you pull that's going to somehow liberate you from this sin. Not merely human accountability, although that's very good and use whatever you can use in terms of human accountability, uh, external restraints as well. Um, I mentioned that it's a sin last time. 
I said that it was a sin to not use external restraints. And what I meant by that was if you're struggling with this sin. I'm not saying it's a sin to not have an internet blocker. Uh, If this is not a struggle for you, then that comment does not apply to you. But if this is a struggle for you and you don't block the, the way of temptation, that is a sin and you need to repent and use the external restraints. But it's got to be more than that. Uh, nobody has to restrain you, as I said, from eating dog excrement. You don't do it because your mind knows that it's bad and you're so persuaded that it is unclean and filthy that you simply have no interest in it. Or as I said, uh, if you're gluten-free, if you're allergic to gluten, uh, that Krispy Kreme donut may look enticing, but you're not going to touch it because you know how it's going to ravage your digestive system. So you got to get it right in your mind. And I said I was going to use an illustration, a practical example rather, and I'd like to do that. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 24. In Hebrews 11, verse 24, we see Moses, by faith, overcoming temptation and making a godly choice to refuse and reject one thing and to accept and embrace another thing. And I want you to see how his humanity, his redeemed, renewed humanity functions in making this godly choice. Verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, He hits roughly 40 years of age. And perhaps, I think it was around the time the Pharaoh died, perhaps he was then going to be next in line for the throne as the prince or as the king of Egypt. We're not sure, but probably something like that. He had a choice to make. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refuses to identify himself with the kingdom of Egypt where he was a high roller. He had everything. He would have had money. He had education. He had reputation. He probably had whatever sensual pleasures, food and drink and sexual things, whatever he would have desired would have been at his fingertips. But He refuses that. He rejects it. And he chooses rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, he did this with his will. It's his will, his decision-making faculty that he says, I'm going to reject this and I'm going to accept and choose and receive this. So on the one hand, you have all that the world has to offer, but he rejects it as a passing pleasure of sin. And on the other hand, he has the temporary suffering and affliction of the people of God. And he chooses one over the other. Why does he choose one over the other? And that's a question that you need to think about because if you're in habitual sin then your goal as a Christian is to figure out how to make the right choice. How to make the right choice when it comes right down to it 
and you have to make that choice in the crunch of temptation. How are you going to make the right choice? How did Moses make the right choice? Well, we're told, verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ. So here he's looking at the temporal affliction of the Hebrews. They're enslaved. They're suffering affliction as the people of God. They're being reproached because they're the people of Christ, because they're God's covenant people. And he esteems that self-denial, that affliction, that temporary unpleasantness that is associated with the Christian life, he esteems that, he values that to be greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. So the reason that he makes the choice is because at a certain practical level, his mind is evaluating the options with a clarity and a spiritual precision that says, look, in reality, these pleasures and treasures of Egypt are merely temporary. His mind comes to the conviction of that truth. These things are temporary. These things are passing. Yes, they're pleasurable. But if somebody offered you an ice cream cone for your right eye, would you give it up? Even if it's your favorite ice cream flavor, are you going to trade your right eye for some ice cream, but the ice cream is so good, it's your favorite flavor. You're not going to do that because, children, forgive me for this, because you're not a moron. (laughs) You're not an idiot. Who would trade their eye for an ice cream cone? When your mind is focused on reality, it's not a difficult decision. And you're not even thinking about the ice cream when you make that decision. You're laughing that anybody would ever even think to tempt you with such a ridiculous temptation. His mind was fixed upon the truth and he was able to evaluate the eternal blessedness of God's people, the the temporary momentary light affliction and self-denial for an eternal weight of glory in comparison to some passing pleasure that leads to eternal ruin. He esteemed even the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. But again, it begs the question, why? So he made the right choice because his mind made the right practical evaluation of the options. But why did his mind make the right practical evaluation of the options? How did he get to that point? Uh, The Puritans speak of our intellectual judgment and our practical judgment. So his practical judgment is such, he's looking at the options and he's evaluating them accurately. But how did he get to that practical judgment of the mind? Well, we're told, for he looked to the reward. He looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So by faith, his mind was able to perceive who God is. The invisible God, but God became visible in terms of the truth of God's Word. It became tangible. He understood it. It made sense. And he understood who God is. And the wrath of God versus the wrath of the king. The wrath of the king is just a drop in the bucket compared to the wrath of of God, the blessing and the treasure of eternal life that God gives to His people. 
an eternal weight of glory compared to a few passing momentary acts of self-denial. He, he looked to the reward and he looked to God Himself. His mind was fixed on spiritual things. Romans 8. It's just an example. It's the same thing. It's the same Bible. It's the same truth. But this is an example of someone who gave up far more pleasure than you ever will. If Moses by faith can give up an entire empire, the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, and all the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, then the Holy Spirit, I think, without lifting His pinky finger, can get you to overcome whatever you need to deny yourself by way of sexual lust and sexual sin. So we need to get our mind right. We need to resensitize ourselves. Moses was sensitized to God's presence, to the blessed reward of God's people, and to the temporary pleasure of sin and the infinite evil and misery of God's wrath. He was sensitized. You see, the world gets you to fix your eyes on sexual lust and evil and perverse things to desensitize you to how bad those things are. You need to resensitize yourself to how bad those things are. You're only going to do that by getting yourself into the Bible. Not just a little bit every day. You need to live and eat, sleep, and breathe in the Bible. And you need to be meditating upon those truths. You need to look at Psalm 119, Selection B, and memorize it and sing it and apply it to your life. By faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. You need the Word of God to resensitize yourself so that you begin to see it as an ice cream cone for an eyeball. In fact, Jesus famously says that in reality, you should be willing to cut out your eyeball to avoid the wrath that is to come for those who are guilty of habitual fornication. So, let's get our minds right. Well, now in our remaining time this morning, um, we have five reasons from our text to flee fornication. Five reasons from our text to flee fornication. First, because it is idolatry. Sexual sin, fornication, is idolatry. Notice that it's stage two idolatry that produces stage three immorality. And so you can see in connection with verse 24, it's really sandwiched with these references to idolatry. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. When they redefined God, all of a sudden, they were opened up and the restraints were pulled back for sexual sin. When they redefined God, it opened the door, opened the floodgates for sexual sin. And verse 25 reinforces this. The ones who were given over to uncleanness were those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. We might even say, though I wouldn't limit it to this, the truth about God. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. They exchanged the truth about God for various lies about God and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So, this is a form of idolatry and it is filled with idolatry. Sexual sin is filled with idolatry because 
when you commit sexual sin, especially as a professing Christian, you're misrepresenting God. And it's this misrepresentation of God that you have embraced that enables you to continue in sin and continue to profess Christ at the same time. It's a misrepresentation of God. In other words, it's chiseling out a false God. It's turning it into a Mr. Potato God. You you come up with the God that you want to worship. Now, I know you're not trying to do that, but that's what you're doing. Because when you engage in secret, private, sexual sin... You're denying the omnipresence of God. The glory of the omnipresent God who is everywhere present, who is there, who is in the dark room in which you commit your sexual sin, whether it's with a computer or another human being, God is there. God is present to see and to take in all that you're doing. You think that you're in the darkness and you'd be ashamed if somebody walked in, you'd immediately take steps to to, to stop what you're doing and limit the damage to your reputation. And you claim to believe in God and you claim that He's omnipresent, but when you sin in the dark, what are you really doing? You're committing that sin as if God's not there. You're temporarily hitting pause on the attributes of God and you're embracing an idol for a while and then when you come out of it, oh, God's there with me again. Oh, I repented and oh, God's forgiving me and and, and now it's all better and He's with me again. But God's not, God will not be canceled. God will not be paused and unpaused. And if that is your relationship with God, I would question your relationship with God. Because God will not be paused and unpaused. You're also creating an idol, a God who is not omniscient. Similarly, God knows all things. And you would go to great lengths to hide your sexual sin. But why are you not concerned that God knows? Because He does. He knows. He knows everything. If somebody were to say, I don't believe God knows all things, we would say, oh, that's heresy. You can't be a member of the church. But you're actually temporarily turning God into a God who for all intents and purposes at a practical level does not know. You're like, you know, when you get a a new kitten and they hide their head underneath the couch and they think nobody can see them because they're in the dark and their head is hidden underneath the couch and, and how foolish, how ridiculous. That's what you're actually doing. As if God can't know and and doesn't know. As if the God of Jacob does not have eyes. Psalm ninety four. You're also exchanging the omnipotent God. The omnipotent God. For a God who in one way or another is not all-powerful. So you can do this in a number of ways. First of all, if you're sinning against God in private, and this is the God that Jesus says, don't fear man, whatever they're going to do to torture your body. Fear God. Fear God who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. When Jesus deals with this in Matthew 5, He says, cut off your hand, cut out your eyeball. In Luke, cut off your foot. Do whatever it takes because this sin will drag you to hell. And God is omnipotent in judging this sin in hell. If you believed in an omnipotent, 
holy and just God, you would tremble. Because, how do I know that? Because if doing what you're doing was easily trackable by the government and you would be thrown in prison for it, you wouldn't do it. Probably. Now, eventually you get so enslaved, maybe you would. But, but my guess is that if you knew the moment you do this, you're going to be punished, you wouldn't do it. So you're basically, God doesn't know, God isn't powerful and imposing and fearful in His judgments. You're also, when, when you profess to be a Christian, and you say, well, I want to stop, but I can't. I can't. So I'm just going to do it because I might as well give in to the temptation because I just, otherwise, I mean, it's just impossible. I can't overcome this. So I might as well get it over with and engage in this sexual sin because I can't. But you claim to be inhabited by the Spirit of God. You claim that you can do all things through Christ who gives you the strength. You claim to be a biblical Christian who says there is nothing too hard for the Lord and His arm is not shortened that it cannot deliver. You claim that He's omnipotent and that He's your God and yet you continue to satisfy this lust believing that you can't do otherwise so you might as well just go through with it. It's an idol. And you've created a God who is not holy and jealous against this sin. I mean, we could go on and on. The fact is, when you commit this sin, you're pausing the real God and then you're unpausing Him when you're finished. It is idolatry. And worst of all, it replaces God. It just doesn't misrepresent Him. But it replaces Him. The One who ought to be your all in all. The One you ought to be able to say with David, Whom have I in heaven but You? What on earth do I desire besides You? The Lord is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. God is my all in all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am satisfied by His presence and His likeness. And He's my Master. And I serve Him. But when you serve sin and you serve lust, and lust becomes your all in all, and you can't be satisfied unless you get that fix. You've replaced your master. You've replaced the desire of your soul. You've replaced your God with another God. Your God is your belly and your appetite. And it's idolatry. And the Scripture says that we need to cast off our idols like an unclean thing. This is an unclean sin. Cast it off. Isaiah 30, verse 22. Cast it off like an unclean thing. Hosea chapter 14. What have I to do anymore with idols? Ephraim says. When the Spirit of God exposes this sexual uncleanness as the idolatry that it is, you see yourself clothed in it and you cast it off. You hate the garment stained by the flesh. You cast it off as an unclean thing and you say with Ephraim, what have I to do anymore with idols? It's over. And you cut ties. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying there won't be bumps along the the road, but I'm saying... What have you to do anymore with idols? That's a question. And, and let's make it not a rhetorical question. How would you answer that question? What have you to do anymore with this idol? Why would you, why would you not cast it off? 
What could it possibly do to help you? Jesus says it's so dangerous. Get rid of it at all costs because for all you know, it will lead you to hell. It is idolatry. Secondly, it is slavery. It is slavery. God gives them over to it. He sells them into bondage. He gives them over into this slavery. Now the Bible talks of two ways in which we can be enslaved to sin. Paul in Romans 7 as a believer is sold under sin. That is, he is temporarily backsliding in a habitual sin of one kind or another. And as a Christian, he wants to do the right thing, but he's fallen prey to sin. Not saying it's sexual sin in that chapter, but I'm just saying he says, I'm sold under sin. So there's a temporary backsliding. There's a battle against sin. The flesh and the spirit rising up. Paul knows all about it. He's not a perfectionist. He's not saying, oh, you're not a Christian because you fell into sin. Paul was a sinner too. He understood that and he said at times he was sold under sin. But in chapter 6, he says that it's the unconverted that are slaves of sin. The one to whom you present your members, your body parts as an instrument to serve them, that is your master and that is your That is slavery. If you're not a slave of Christ and righteousness, you're a slave of sin and Satan and unrighteousness. So how do you know which one it is? How do you know whether you're temporarily sold under sin and that by the Spirit's power you're going to overcome and be liberated from that habitual pattern of sin? Or if you're a slave of sin and the minimum wage for sin from slave master sin is death. How do you know, in other words, if you're a true Christian when you find yourself in habitual sin? How do you know if you're one whom the truth has set free? Or how do you know if you're someone who has been enslaved in their heart to harlotry? Well, again, the answer to Romans 7 is Romans 8. We've looked at a number of verses there, but let me just read verses 13 and 14 of Romans 8. The battle between the spirit and the flesh is taking place. Perhaps we've had casualties in that war. We've lost some battles in the overall war. But how do we know that we're temporarily sold under sin versus a slave of sin for eternity? Listen. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it doesn't say believers don't have sin living in them. They do. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to kill sin. Okay? If, you, if you were perfect and you didn't have sinful lusts living and operating and influencing in your life, you wouldn't need to kill them. But if you are a Christian you are going to respond to this struggle and these passages. Even right now, if, you, if, if you're just completely at your lowest point, if you're a Christian, right now, you will respond to this. And you will live by the Spirit's power. You will make it a point to walk by the Spirit. You will take steps, step by step by step, walking in the Christian life, to reject the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. And if you live according to the flesh, in other words, if you don't do that, if you're walking in the other direction, if you're living and walking according to your sexual lust, it will lead you to hell. So the question is, which direction are you walking? 
in your lifestyle, not on a Sunday morning because, you know, we can easily deceive ourselves about what we're doing at this time in the week, but what, what are you doing in your overall life? Are you walking towards righteousness or unrighteousness? Are you taking steps, step by step, to fight against this sin, to move the ball down the field against this sin? Or are you sitting on the sidelines while Satan has a field day in your life? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do you know if you're a Christian? Whether you're repenting right now. I cannot give you comfort or assurance, and the Bible doesn't give you comfort or assurance, if at this moment you are in rebellion against God and refusing to repent and refusing to surrender yourself to the almighty power and sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. If you right now are saying, I'm just going to continue in this and I'm not ready to cast it off, I have no comfort for you because there is no comfort. There is no peace for the wicked. So do you repent right now? And are you willing right now to refuse Egypt and to choose the self-denial of the people of God? Are you willing to put these sins to death? Are you willing to drown them in the Red Sea and hold them under the water and deny yourself? Are you ready to do that? And Do you believe that Jesus Christ will liberate you? Because this is an enslaving sin. And the more you think about it as slavery, the more you will hate it and the more you will be empowered to want to kill it. We kill things, or I suppose if you're going to kill a person, it's because you hate them. You're not going to kill sin until you hate it and you're not going to hate it until you realize that it is enslaving you. But it's not just enslaving you. Sexual lust enslaves others. In fact, in a way, you become the slave master and other people are enslaved so that you can have your pleasure. Not too long ago, I was reading an article about a father who took his daughter to a Dallas Mavericks basketball game. And midway through the game, his daughter had not returned from the restroom and he was getting concerned and he went to look for her and he couldn't find her and he talked to the people at the arena and then to law enforcement and uh, they couldn't find her. She was gone. And they uh, had a, a rule, the, the law enforcement had a policy that unless there was clear evidence to the contrary, they would assume that a teenage person who was missing was a runaway. So the police weren't even really doing anything. This, this father lost his daughter. She was abducted at a Dallas Mavericks basketball game when she went to the restroom. Thankfully, though it's still not a pretty picture, 11 days later, uh, there was a nonprofit organization that searches for missing teenagers and missing persons on the internet that found her on a pornographic website. They found her on the porn website and 11 days later, they were able to apprehend the perpetrators of that human trafficking scheme and pornography scheme, and they were able to recover her, and, and she's now, even now still, hopefully recovering and healing from that, but 11 days of hell on earth. And why did those people who are now in custody 
probably charged with something less than the death penalty, which is a tragedy in, in itself. But why did those people risk getting in trouble with the law to steal this teenage daughter away from her father and, and be, make her a sex slave and, and put her on that website? Um, they did that for you if you're going to porn websites. You're, you're actually the reason that it's lucrative and beneficial for them to steal teenage girls and put them on those websites and enslave them in that horrific, hellish way. Th these websites are largely dealing in trafficked individuals. That's just a fact. And I looked it up, I, I didn't bring the printout with me, but it was an organization that, uh, that didn't seem anywhere near, nowhere even in the zip code of biblical Christianity, but had done research on the relationship between pornography and human trafficking and the connection is virtually inseparable. The number of people who are recovered from human trafficking, sex trafficking, that, uh, that have been involved in pornography is off the charts. The percentages are very high. And more could be said. The point is that uh, pornography is utilizing sex slavery and the fact is it's so that you or whoever goes to these sites can be satisfied. That is actually what's happening. So it's not just enslaving you, but in a way your sexual freedom is, is putting other people through sexual slavery and hell on earth. Do you hate it yet? Do you hate it yet? When you're tempted to go look at this or that or to do this or that, and you think about that these people that have been abducted and these fathers that are swimming in their beds with tears, does that shock you out of it? Thirdly, it is unclean. It is unclean. Paul calls it uncleanness. The Bible says that sins of this kind are like a dog returning to its vomit, like a pig wallowing in the mire. Think of the dog returning to its vomit. The dog ate something that was not good for it, and it didn't feel good and the dog rightly vomited it up. That's a good thing. And perhaps you've fallen into sexual lust, and then you feel bad, and you repent, or you have regret, and you say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this, and you vomit it out, but then it's not too long before you start sticking your nose back in the vomit, and you eat it again. And that is how the Bible describes many sins, but especially this sin, as just utter insanity. You're forgetting what it caused in your life that caused you to vomit it up in the first place. You're forgetting the nausea, the symptoms, the pain, the, the distastefulness, and now you're going back again and again and again. Think about the uncleanness. Not just the guilt, but the defilement. When you, as a Christian, unite your body to these things, when you employ your body in these things, you are employing a body that is united to Jesus Christ and you are defiling that relationship that you have with Christ. Uniting Christ, as it were, with a harlot. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. 
It's unclean, and you need to visualize that. You need to think about how unclean it is so that you, when, if, if you see something on a billboard or if you see somebody walking down the street and it's a temptation, that you utterly are repulsed in your being by these things. Fourthly, it is degrading. Paul says that God gives them over to this uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. The word for dishonor here includes the word for honor that is used throughout the New Testament to refer to giving someone credit for something or even uh, making a payment or uh, people talk about uh, uh, double honor and, and it's debatable, but they use that to speak of paying pastors and elders for their service. But but the point is, that's the same word that does mean, it does have this monetary, financial aspect to it. So to dishonor their bodies is essentially to cheapen their bodies. That's what that word really brings across in its meaning. To cheapen their bodies, to devalue their God-given sexuality. Now, we all know what it means to devalue the dollar. When you devalue the currency of the U.S. dollar, that means that you have to spend more of it to get what you desire. If you want a gallon of gas, you're going to have to spend a lot more today than you had to spend a year ago to get a gallon of gas because of the devaluation of the dollar. It's called inflation. When you devalue something, you have to spend more of it to get what you want. There, and, and pornography and the sexuality of our culture has created an increase of the supply of sexual pleasure on the market. And so, particularly thinking first of women, in order for women to have a meaningful, intimate relationship that they may desire with a man, uh, it's more difficult because now they're competing with pornography. Now they're competing with billboards. Now they're competing with people who live in mom or dad's basement and have a relationship with the computer. Um, There's a greater supply, less demand. So what happens? Uh, Women are expected to show more and do more. They're expected to show more and do more in order to get that relationship that they want, in order to get, get the attention of men who are addicted to these things. Because there's a flood of sensuality on the market. They have to show more and they have to do more to have that relationship. And it's like retailers that are competing for business. The prices just keep going down on on sexuality and on the human body. But it also cheapens and devalues men. Proverbs 6 verse 26 describes men who are engaged in sexual lust and sexual sin. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. So it devalues and cheapens female sexuality. It devalues and cheapens male sexuality because your sexuality is just a business model for somebody who's making tons of money off of you, off every click, of every monetized video, Everything that you're doing in seeking your lust, you are making somebody else rich. Which they're doing at the expense, probably, of sex slavery. So that's wicked as well. But you become 
you become just a piece, just a loaf of bread, a crust of bread. My friends, you need to think. Finally, you need to see that this sexual uncleanness is deadly. Flee it because it is deadly. We're told in verse 24 that they dishonor their bodies among themselves. Among themselves. Among whom? Who are the themselves? What's referring to the pagan nations of unbelievers, unconverted idolaters. The world, if you will, is dominated by lust. And the world, we're told in Ephesians 2, is dead in trespasses and sins. It is dead. Dead as a doornail under the power of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And I'm saying this just as a warning. As a warning. The themselves Paul describes as those who fulfill the lusts and desires of their flesh and of their mind. And he says that they're dead in trespasses and sins. He says that they are by nature children of wrath. So when it says God gives them over to do these things among themselves, understand the themselves, those who are under the wrath of God, unconverted, unregenerate people, are described as those who fulfill the lusts and desires of their sinful flesh. To be a Christian is to be set apart from that, to be delivered from that, to be liberated from that, to be raised up and exalted in Christ away from that. First Peter makes the, the same point. Peter's first epistle. First Peter 4, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Listen, he's saying that You're a Christian now, so you're not in habitual satisfaction of your sexual lusts. That is a characteristic mark of someone who has passed from death to life. That enough, it's the past, it's not the present. And so what I'm saying is, perhaps you are a Christian and you're sold under sin, but you have no reason to think that you're a believer if you're continuing day by day, week by week, month by month, to continue in this satisfaction of sexual lust. You need to be warned. And you need to get to the point where you can say with Peter, enough! Enough! It stops today. By the power of God, I will cast it away as an unclean thing. What have I to do anymore with idols? Otherwise, you are one of themselves. Among themselves. Dishonoring, defiling their bodies among themselves. You are part and parcel of the world and not of the people of God. It is the case that whoever is is entrenched and enslaved to this sin who will not repent is not of Christ, is not of the body of His people in principle, in the heart. And on judgment day, you will be with the goats rather than with the sheep. 
That is how much you should fear this sin and hate this sin. Don't be like Esau where you give up your spiritual birthright just so that you can have a bowl of red stew. Understand the stakes. Don't go near to the harlot's house. Don't touch the unclean thing. Leave it alone. Its, its steps lead to hell, Solomon says in Proverbs 5 and 6. And, and let me close again just with the greater Solomon. When Jesus deals with this sin, and He's speaking to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, He does not say, avoid and flee sexual sin, my disciples, because then your Christian life won't be all that it could be. He doesn't say that. He says to people who profess to be His disciples, verse 28 of Matthew 5, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Sexual sin, when you you see it, when you're tempted with it, your first thought should be, Hell, eternal separation from God, guilt, misery for all eternity. You have to see hell in every sin. And that is how the true Christian overcomes sin and grows in assurance and makes the decision with Moses and has success like Paul in killing his sin. It's not that I'm saying doubt your salvation and and, and if you fall into sin completely, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is see hell in every sin. And you should be no more willing to satisfy that lust than you are to walk into the door and dive into the blazing inferno of hell itself. Jesus says do anything, do everything at any cost and it will still be profitable For why would you gain? Why would you seek to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Those are the stakes. Again, has it hit home yet? Do you realize how destructive and hateful and vile and deadly this sin is? Flee to Christ and be forgiven and be restored and be blessed and have eternal joy and happiness world without end. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Holy Spirit who has inspired this Word which speaks so clearly to these issues. We pray that You would renew our minds that we might not be conformed to the pattern of this world. We pray that You would increase our assurance as You would increase our holiness and our zeal for righteousness, and our hatred of sin. We pray that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the warnings that He proclaims to us would ring in our ears when the devil comes calling, and that we would trample Him underfoot. In Jesus' name, Amen.